Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. In this episode, Trey Dimsdale from Acton will speak with Andrew Graham from First Liberty Institute to talk about a current case threatening the Bladensburg World War I Memorial in Maryland, known as the Peace Cross. The land on which the cross stands was first privately owned by American Legion, and the memorial was erected with privately raised funds. But now the land belongs to the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, and the U.S. Court of Appeals has declared the cross unconstitutional. As Trey wrote in an article for Acton, if the court rejects the claims of the American Legion, a new pathway to the exclusion of religion and religious symbols from public life will emerge. First Liberty is now working on behalf of American Legion, and the court ruling is expected in June. In the second segment, executive producer of Act in Line, John Caritas, speaks with author and political economist James R. Audison about his new book, Honorable Business, addressing objections commonly raised against business and commercial society, as well as proposing a framework for business in a just society. Before we dive into the first segment, though, I want to let you know that you can find all the articles and resources that go along with these segments in the show notes, and they're posted at blog.acton.org. That's blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N Also, last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at acton.org slash line. This is Trey Dimsdale, Director of Program Outreach at the Acton Institute, here with Andrew Graham, an attorney at First Liberty Institute in Plano, Texas, a public interest law firm that handled a uh, case recently in the Supreme Court known as the Bladensburg Cross case. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us today on Acton Line. Thanks, Trey. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Andrew, can you uh, set the stage a little bit for our conversation? Can you tell me what was um, what was at stake in this uh, this recent case that your your firm was handling? Well, most basically, this case involves whether a nearly one hundred year old World War One memorial in the shape of a cross has to come down after all that time. There was a lawsuit filed by the American Humanist Association in 2014 arguing that the cross violates the Establishment Clause and for that reason should be removed or moved. You know, in in American um, religious liberty jurisprudence, the name the Lemon Test gets it's uh, thrown around when something like this kind of makes its way into the into the media. Can you explain briefly what what the lemon test is? The lemon test comes from the Supreme Court's case in Lemon versus Kurtzman, which was decided in 1971. Over time, that test has really come to be interpreted as a endorsement test or a reasonable observer test. And what that effectively means is that if a person were to come by and were to be offended as a reasonable observer, uh, then that would mean that a religious symbol therefore violated the Establishment Clause, assuming that it was on government property, of course. So the Lemon Test is a three-pronged test, right? And so this is it's actually evaluating government action, legislation, the action of, a, of an administrative body. What, what are the requirements of the, of the Lemon Test in order to be able to judge some sort of government action as permissible? Sure. Well, the test has three prongs, as you said. The first prong of the Lemon Test regards whether there is a secular purpose. Uh, the second part of the test 
asks, does the religious symbol advance or inhibit religion? And then the third part is, does it produce a unnecessary entanglement between uh, government and religion? Those are the three prongs. Uh, the lemon test has been widely criticized, however, and one of the things that we're hoping the court will do in uh, this case is perhaps overrule the lemon test. The court hasn't applied lemon in a very long time now, and I think it's largely because those three factors we just mentioned have proved very difficult uh, for lower courts to make sense of. This case comes from uh, comes out of Circuit Court of Appeals, and at that level, when that court you know analyzed these particular facts, it it applied the lemon test. Yes. Okay. And um, what was the outcome of uh, of that proceeding? Well, in the district court, which is in the federal district court in Maryland, the cross that we're talking about is located in Bladensburg, Maryland, in Prince George's County, which is located within the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. The district court ruled that the cross was constitutional. However, the federal appellate court, the Fourth Circuit, uh, ruled in a margin of two to one that the cross was unconstitutional under the Lemon Test. Two to one, is that what you said? Yes. And so the interesting wrinkle about this case is that the cross was originally built with private funds on private land and just in those intervening 100 years, you ended up with, you know, a, a you know, change in hands. And so now it's on public lands. Now, can you describe a little bit about the process of how the, you know, the property ended up changing hands, why it ended up changing hands, and you know, maybe some of the, the, the unique aspects of this case that result from that fact? The cross was originally constructed in 1925, immediately following the end of the uh, First World War. It was not until 1961, however, that the uh, Maryland uh, Park Commission took control of the cross, and it largely did so for traffic safety reasons. Uh, as you know, in 1925, we really weren't driving as a country yet, and Bladensburg, Maryland is really located in suburban D.C., and at that time, uh, it became a traffic safety issue, so it was worked out where the property was transferred to the Maryland Park Commission. What is the what is the threat then? The unique threat in this case to our you know religious liberty, or religious freedom, economic liberty uh, as Americans with this particular fact pattern? Well, I think most basically, as you said, given the cross was built on private property with private funds, the government, which took possession due to traffic safety issues, it stands to imply that the government can take property as it needs to for even a legitimate reason, but that could result in a historical monument, in the, this time in the shape of a cross, being removed uh, because of a, an Establishment Clause violation that's alleged only well after the fact. It seems like, you know, Bladensburg is within, you know, a stone's throw of uh, Arlington Cemetery. It's full of religious symbols, uh, stars of David, crosses, all types of, uh, uh, even crescents, you know, now, now, in, uh, you know, now that we've become a little bit more diverse in our, in our religions that are represented in the U.S., does an adverse decision at the Supreme Court threaten those religious symbols? 
in a word, yes. And so this is not a, um, you know, a, a particular concern of, uh, did, did the courts at any level express any type of concern about this? Did they, uh, did they, did they comment in any way? even in oral arguments at the Supreme Court about that. Well, that topic was one that was uh, readily discussed at the U.S. Supreme Court during oral argument. And there were lots of questions asked, not just about the Bladensburg Peace Cross, but about crosses, as you say, in Arlington Cemetery. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals covers not only Maryland, but also Virginia. And of course, Arlington Cemetery is in Arlington, Virginia. The import of that meaning that if the ruling were left to stand, then it would set a precedent for the American Humanists Association or any other group to go into Arlington and start challenging religious symbols as a violation of the Establishment Clause. Changing gears just just uh, a little bit, uh, you're slated to come and speak at Acton University this summer in June. You're going to actually give a give a lecture there that combines considerations that come out of the Bladensburg Cross, as well as another case that you guys are handling out of Oregon. Um, can you mention a little bit about um, what we have to look forward to with regard to that talk? Sure, I can't wait. I think Acton University is a fantastic event, and I'm greatly looking forward to it, and I'm honored for the privilege to be able to come speak there. The case that you're mentioning is the case that's gotten a lot of media attention called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. Our clients are Aaron and Melissa Klein. It's one of the uh, cake baking wars cases, and it happens to be a case where the state of Oregon fined our clients, Aaron Melissa Klein, $135,000 for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. I think it shows the significant nexus between economic liberty and uh, religious freedom, because here we have an exercise of government power that literally puts someone out of business based upon their sincerely held religious beliefs. So essentially, these small business owners are making business decisions that are based upon their own moral compass, and the state is then regulating them out of out of existence. That's right. If you want to do business in our state, I think you could say you have to do business the way we say you do business, uh, and that includes violating your sincerely held religious beliefs, or we're simply going to find you to the point where you can't be in business any longer. So essentially throwing up a bar to entry into certain fields because of of, a, of an individual's sincerely held beliefs. Now, earlier before we hit record on this, we were we were discussing a uh, an American um, bar association model rule that seems to touch on this. Is there? I mean, tell us a little bit about that as well. I mean, this is uh, this is something I think that Americans need to be aware of. Sure, and this is something that I would tell any young person who is going to law school today to be aware of before you sign up and take the LSAT. It's that kind of issue. The American Bar Association has promulgated a model rule, uh, the model rule 8.4G, and it's effectively a speech code for lawyers and lawyers who express certain opinions even on behalf of clients that could be construed as discriminatory or aggressive or hostile toward uh, people with different uh, views on traditional marriage or sexuality, they could receive bar discipline in their jurisdictions if that rule is adopted. And it could ultimately lead to disbarment. The good news is that so far it's only been adopted in the state of Vermont, 
and there's a vigorous campaign across the country to keep it from being implemented elsewhere. So I see here a pattern developing that there there seems to be an assault upon what's permissible to believe internally by an assault on on the the ability of of those who hold those beliefs to actually make a living to enter into a profession and and to support themselves. So um, this this case, uh, re- returning back to the Bladensburg Cross briefly as we we wrap up. What is your gut with regard to how how this is going to come out? You you heard the arguments. You were sitting there in the courtroom. Um, what's your analysis of how it went? And 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 do you think that uh, First Liberty's client wins or loses? I think it's quite likely that the Bladensburg Peace Cross will be upheld as constitutional. I think what is much less clear is the grounds of decision. I think that it was clear during oral argument that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, and Chief Justice Roberts expressed grave doubts about whether the Lemon Test should uh, continue uh, to exist and function the way it has. Uh, In fact, one of the funny points of the argument, Justice Gorsuch actually referred to the Lemon Test as a dog's breakfast. So I think there's really a widespread recognition that the test uh, probably needs to go. The bigger question is whether that the court is going to go with the coercion test that we are asking the court to adopt, or we'll take a more historical point of view as other people have urged. It's unclear what they'll ultimately say, and I don't know that there are five votes to overturn Lemon, but I I do think that uh, this case does have the potential to radically reshape the court's establishment clause jurisprudence if there are five votes to overturn Lemon. All right, Andrew, just briefly, can you tell us uh, how we can find out more about the work of First Liberty Institute? Uh, Visit us on the web. We're at firstliberty.org, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. We have a lot of information on the website about religious freedom in America, and if you're interested in the subject, I think you'll find a wealth of knowledge there. And you provide representation for free. Is that, that right? That's correct. All of our work on behalf of our clients is uh, done pro bono, and we're very proud to represent people with very significant issues uh, that relate to their sincerely held religious beliefs, and we're honored we can do that for free because of the uh, generosity of our donors. Well, Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on Act in Line today. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in Grand Rapids. For any of you that might be interested in Acton University, you can check that out at university.acton.org. We'd love to see you in Grand Rapids this June. Thanks a lot. In the past few decades, grim news from the Muslim world has raised an important question in the West. Is Islam a religion compatible with the idea of individual freedom? And does Islam allow, for example, Muslims to change the religion or critics of the faith to express their thoughts? These are legitimate questions, as Islam's legal tradition includes many elements of religious coercion, supremacism, and violence. But reformist trends in Islam reinterpret religious law by referring to the moral teachings at its core. The result is an intellectual battle going on in the Muslim world, where some condemn freedom as a Western invention, while others praise it as Allah's blessing. To learn more about this topic, come join us for a lunch and lecture event at the Acton Institute on April 25. To register, visit acton.org events. Welcome to Acton Line. I'm your host, John Caritas. 
Today we're having a conversation with James R. Otteson. He has a new book out from Oxford University Press titled Honorable Business, A Framework for Business in a Just and Humane Society. James is professor and Thomas W. Smith, Presidential Chair in Business Ethics at Wake Forest University in the Department of Economics. He is the author of books on Adam Smith, Socialism, and Business Ethics. Welcome to Acton Line, Jim. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I enjoyed the book very much. I think it's a very timely book in light of where we are today and in the perception of the market economy. And as we all know, the growing shift towards popular sentiment in favor of socialism and expanded role in government. I'd like to uh, start if we could, with a couple of lines from your book, beginning with your conception of business. As you write, business has the additional benefit of encouraging proper moral relations among people. We must respect others and their choices, even when we do not agree with their choices. And you continue by saying that the primary purpose of honorable business is to create value for everyone involved. And this value is created, in your view, in a voluntary and mutually beneficial way. The test you pose is this. Do others wish to engage in exchange with us? So my question, I guess, to start is, how did we get to the point where so many believe that we're pawns of a ruthless market and amoral commercial society? Some would say the system is rigged against uh, every man. Yeah, well, that's a, um, a very good question, and you're, you're right to say that uh, that does seem to be at least um, a large part of the view that many people have about business, that it is uh, ruthless and uh, amoral at best, maybe even immoral. What I had in mind by thinking about the proper relations among people is what I call the opt-out option. What honorable business does is it makes offers, suggestions, proposals, but in each case, what it does is recognize that the other person, the person on the other side of the proposed exchange, uh, has the right to say no thank you and go elsewhere. If other people have the right to say no thank you and go elsewhere to any offer or proposal that's made, um, then what that does is it immediately levels our uh, respective moral agency. It means that I am no more important, have no more authority than you do. If I can't mandate that you partner with me or buy from me, work for me, exchange with me, et cetera, if I can't force you to do it, I can't mandate uh, you to do it, then however much money I may have or however great I think my services are, um, I have no more authority than you do. Um, and what that means in a market economy is that I have to constantly be thinking not just about what I want, but I have to think about what you want. In order for me to be successful, I have to be thinking about you. My argument is that that encourages proper moral relations among people because it encourages us to think not only about ourselves. It, it, it's okay to, I, I think, um, to want to serve our own interests. But what we can't do is want to or seek to serve our interests at the expense of others. It has to be in willing cooperation with others. And when you have willing cooperation with others, then what that means is that where um, I might benefit, but you're going to benefit too. If you didn't be think you benefited, you wouldn't do it. And if I didn't think I benefited, then I wouldn't do it. So those kinds of relations, those exchanges, um, encourage us not only to think of others as our moral peers, our moral equals, but they also encourage us to seek out ways to benefit both parties to the exchange at the same time. That, that's how I think about honorable business. When most of us are engaging in exchange at a personal level, we actually behave that way. We conceive of a market relation that way. For example, 
I want to sell a car or a boat. I put an ad on Craigslist. I solicit offers. I want really the best price for what I'm selling if I can. I am free to accept or reject the offers. If I get an offer I like, then I negotiate in an exchange relationship with another person, a prospective buyer. I respect their freedom, their moral agency, their dignity even. And if we have a deal, well, we both benefit. So at that level, it seems like it's not at all controversial. We are functionally free market people when it comes to a lot of these personal decisions. Wouldn't you see it that way? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I, But, but the, the, the problem with or the, the reason, I think, or part of the reason why people think of market forces as being more impersonal and commercial society being um, somehow different from these kinds of um, person-to-person relations that, we, that you were just describing is because oftentimes um, they're the result of lots of people making decisions, independent decisions, uh, many of whom we, ha- we don't know and don't even know of their existence. So, you know, Amazon is a huge company and sells a lot of products. And it may seem like, well, it's all just sort of impersonal and this big force out there, Amazon. What we don't think of is that Amazon isn't anything at all if it weren't for all of the individual decisions that thousands, millions of people are making to buy from them. When we think about market forces, that's really, I think, a term of art that that is referring to all of the decisions that other people are making that I am not party to and I'm not part of, um, and that includes uh, decisions not to do things. So when a company decides to reallocate its resources or shift its resources, or sometimes companies go out of business, in fact, um, um, almost 80% of all new business ventures um, go out of business within the first two years. Um, that can seem like impar- impersonal market forces, but really what that's reflecting is um, the thousands and millions of decisions that other individuals are making. And um, although those decisions are not ones that we ourselves are making, or maybe we don't even know the people who are making them, still they're the result of individual decisions. So it may seem much more impersonal, uh, but that's only because we don't, we're not party to those, uh, those decisions and uh, exchanges, and we're not the ones who are making those decisions. And Amazon is a good, a good example of that. The actual operations of a company or even a single transaction is so much more massively complex, involving so many more individuals and and related firms that oh, absolutely, it's hard it's hard to perceive where anyone fits in. And then when the box shows up on your doorstep, it seems like you know, gargantuan, magic. yeah, gargantuan <laughs> business dropped this out of the sky. And so perhaps problem is that again, there's another perception problem there. I I would suspect. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And by the way, I think this is a, you know, th- this is an insight that uh, goes all the way back at least to Adam Smith and his Wealth of Nations. Smith talks about what he calls a, a woolen coat that a day laborer wears. He says if you just think about a very plain coat that a uh, you know just a, a working class person wears, think about all of the people who had to cooperate and work together in order to bring that coat to that day laborer. You have the sheep shearers and the people who made the shears, and you had the tra- people who engaged in transport and raising and 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 the, uh, the the agriculture that led to the feed for the sheep, and you have ship makers and all of these. And so Smith sort of traces out all of these. It starts out as dozens, and then it's hundreds, and then pretty soon it's thousands of people who had to cooperate in various ways from different countries and speaking different languages, all to bring that coat that even just a 
plain wool coat. But if you think about something like, well, you know, you buy an iPhone, how many people from how many different countries and no single person knows all of those people or is coordinating all of them. So it can seem like a sort of a, a, a magical product that just appears or maybe we think, oh, you know, it's just the company that's doing this for us. But this is really the result of um, a very extensive chain of human cooperation um, that can be um, far exceeding what we might initially imagine. Yeah, I think Smith would be just amazed at how the simple example he cited with the coat is now extended to a globalized economy. Absolutely. That is so interdependent and so complex and such an engine of wealth creation that he probably just would wonder at it agape when he saw the, the, the dimensions of it. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, he would, I think he would take it as a, as a confirmation of his prediction, but uh, to, a, to a level and to an extent that, uh, he, that he could not have imagined. You know, one thing I liked about your book is that, you know, it functions on a number of levels. You could read it as an economics text and you go through a lot of the principles that you would get in a text like that. But you also draw from other disciplines, philosophy, politics, uh, economics, as we mentioned, and even history and psychology. In doing so, you also address many of the objections uh, that have been raised to business, you know, things like inequality, unfairness, negative externalities, exploitation, and the like. So you've done a very effective job of that. And one area that I was struck by is when you talked about creative destruction. Most people are familiar with the principle, Schumpeter, you know, there's this cyclical nature of creation and destruction, innovation going on. But the way you discuss this is in a way that's really humane, I think, and it acknowledges the fact that there is a toll to creative destruction that can often be uh, personal and social. So there's a lot of that going on right now that where we get the alienation and the pushback on the economy. If I could point to an example of how I think we should not be talking about creative destruction. Today, okay. March, March 11th, in the Wall Street Journal, there's an op-ed by Bobby Jindal. And in it, the title of the piece, you know, he's the former governor of Louisiana, and he, he was a candidate for a Republican presidential nomination recently. The title of the piece is American Capitalism is Fine, Thank You, and the, and the subhead is The Real Debate is Whether to Accept the Creative Destruction at the Heart of the Free Market System. Now, to me, it's almost, it's, it's not almost, it's a callous way to go about talking about what happens to real people out there when there's these changes. And his, the last line of his piece says, the real debate is whether to accept the creative destruction at the heart of the free market system, a system responsible for so much prosperity around the world, full stop. And in your description of creative destruction, you add this. But if my family has been in coal mining in West Virginia for generations, and it is all I have ever known, it is a tall order to expect me just to pick up and move to North Dakota and take a job there in fracking. And what guarantee do I have that the new job in North Dakota will last? But there will be some who are not better off for it. Some people lose their jobs or lose their business and never recover. So I think that's important for us to add to this conversation. If we're going to convince people that the market economy produces these 
innumerable benefits and goods, then we also should be acknowledging that, you know what, it can go sideways on some people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a, I mean, that's just taking what I think is an objective look at things. You know, when we talk about, um, you know, market economies. Um, you know, we are in the United States and other market economies, we're richer than we've ever been. We have longer, we have more longevity, we're healthier. Um, all of those things are objectively true, but those are all averages. Um, so market economies generate an enormous amount of wealth and prosperity overall, but that doesn't mean that it makes it to every single citizen or every single person and certainly not equally. Um, so when we talk about creative destruction, um, you know, what we tend to focus on is the creative part of that. You know, we, we want all the technological innovations and all the revolutions in figuring out new and better, faster, more efficient ways to use our resources. Um, and they do generate an, an enormous uh, amount of prosperity overall. But creative destruction is two words. It's not just creation. It's also destruction. And what that means is that there are also businesses that go under. And um, there are whole industries that are superseded, and, you know, we move beyond it. And even if it's the case, as I do believe, even if it's the case that overall we are better off for having a, a system of political economy in which you have entrepreneurs and innovators and we can benefit from all of their ideas and their innovations, it's still also the case that all of those aspects of creation entail dislocation and displacement um, and cost. And I think for us to pretend otherwise is, um, as you say, I think it's just inhumane, and it's also just factually incorrect. There are places and people who will lose and will suffer from it. Now, from my perspective, you know, I don't think we should ignore that. On the contrary, I think what that means is, um, you know, there may that these are cases in which, you know, even if it's true, I'm going to concede an argument. Even if it's true that. Those people themselves still, I mean, so people who lose their businesses or people who lose their jobs, overall, they're still better off for being in a country or within a, under an economy that allows for innovation and, um, and entrepreneurship. Nevertheless, they're still suffering a cost and they're still suffering a loss and displacement. I think that means that these are um, important, these put uh, important obligations on us as human beings to help those who need it. Um, now, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, I'm a Christian. I tend to think of that as being Christian obligation. When I see a person who needs help, and if I'm able to help, then I should help. Um, but I think it does us no favors if we pretend that that doesn't exist, or we just sort of say, well, every, it'll all come out in the wash. It may, but, you know, it's, these aren't articles of clothing we're washing. These are human beings. And I think we need to pay attention to the individual human being as a locus of dignity and that generates responsibility from others. No, I couldn't agree more. Now, if I may now, I'd like to turn to um, some of the ethical thinking in your book. You draw on the ethics of Aristotle, and you use a term from his ethics called eudaimonia. Could you help, help us understand how Aristotle used the term and how this ethical thinking can help us in business decision-making and, as you put it, help to create a more flourishing society? Yeah, so um, I do draw quite a bit on Aristotle in the book, um, as you know, as you mentioned. So Aristotle's idea is that human beings, perhaps uniquely among all creatures on earth, what we have is not just purposes, but we are essentially purpose-driven creatures. In other words, we have goals, um, we have ends, we have preferences, we have things we want to achieve in life. 
Um, and Aristotle's idea is that maybe uniquely among all, all creatures, we can actually think about those goals and we can change them. We can change our behavior in light of them and we can maybe reorder them and re-examine them. So for Aristotle, what that means is that in order for us to lead a flourishing life, meaning um, a, a, a full human life given the kinds of creatures we are, we have to spend some time thinking about what our goals are. He thinks that there's a kind of hierarchy of our goals. In other words, we have short-term goals, things we want to achieve today and tomorrow, um, that are themselves in the service of longer-term goals, um, things we'd like to achieve in our lives by um, in a year or in five years or even ten years. But this hierarchy leads all the way up to, according to Aristotle anyway, a final or ultimate goal. He calls that eudaimonia. That's his word for it. It means something like a truly flourishing um, human life. And I think the way to think about it is that you will have led a eudaimonic life if you ask yourself, well, when, when I'm at the end of my life, when I'm 80 or 90 or 120 years old, and I look back on the life that I led, Will I, thought, will I then think that the life I led was worth having been led? Did I use all of the opportunities and skills and ability, all my time, talent, and treasure in the service of goals that I thought were worth achieving? That's the kind of life that Aristotle thought we should all aim for. And then once we understand what kind of a life that will be for each of us as individuals, we can then just reverse engineer. So in order to have that life, have led that kind of life by the end of it, what do I have to have accomplished in 20 years from now? What do I have to have accomplished in 10 years, in five years, in one year, and what do I have to be doing today? Yeah, I noticed you're, uh, you have a project called the Eudaimonia Institute. Could you tell me a little bit about that and, and what the institute does? Yeah, that's a, it's, a, a, it's a university-wide institute at Wake Forest University. Um, and its mission is to try to understand, see if we can come to a substantive understanding of what a eudaimonic or truly flourishing human life is on the one hand, and then on the other hand, um, look at what are the public and social institutions that seem to enable such lives. So that's looking at political institutions, economic, moral, maybe cultural, if culture is an institution, but trying to figure out what exactly are the institutions that enable the best kind of lives for human beings. Um, one of the things, I'll just mention one thing, one of the things we are working on um, and we're very much looking forward to, we're working on uh, very hard right now, is we want to actually create what we're calling a eudaimonia index, where we're going to rank countries in the world on the extent to which their institutions encourage their citizens to achieve these truly flourishing human lives. Um, so we're working very hard on that. Um, that that's uh, much more difficult to, to actually pull off than it might sound, but we want to have you know, both a, an empirically grounded and a philosophically sound conception of uh, what true human flourishing is, including the virtues that are distinctively human, and then what the institutions are that encourage it. Well, uh, good luck with that index, and if you can uh, pull you. that <laughs> off, uh, we'd like to have you back to talk about uh, what you've accomplished there. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, uh, Jim, and I want to thank you again for being on Acton Line. We've been talking to James R. Otteson, who has a new book out from Oxford University Press titled Honorable Business, a Framework for Business in a Just and Humane Society. Highly recommended. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much, John. My pleasure. Thank you for listening today. Our team here at Acton wouldn't be able to produce Acton Line without you, and we would love to hear any feedback you have for this show. Help us make an even better show and email us at actonline at acton.org.
Also, last but not least, don't forget to swing over to our website at acton.org slash line. That's acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash line. And subscribe to this podcast. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, or wherever you listen.